0: church. We are by default drawn to sin. It's our nature, our nature human. It's the result of our brokenness. It's our heritage. Thousands of years ago, our two parents found themselves drawn to a tree in a garden. Having been drawn to that tree, they encountered Satan face to face. In that encounter, They listened for the wrong voice. The voice of God became muddled in background to them. The one hanging in the tree tempted them to distrust the one who made them. And thus began the rollout of a broken genetic code. A brokenness that is so much a part of us that we hardly hear the voice of God anymore. That we struggle to know what it sounds like. That we long for and wish that it would shout. That there would be skywriting. That there would be some intense intervention from the sky on our behalf. It's so confused by us that even when we have an absolute revelation from God, we struggle to hold it and make sense of it. There's a, uh, a card produced by Hallmark that is meant to be a Father's Day card. It's meant to be humorous. Have you ever noticed, dads, that a lot of Father's Day cards that are meant to be humorous aren't that funny? You know what I mean? Yeah, funny. Thanks. This card said, Dad, thanks to your lectures, I never change horses in the middle of a job worth doing. I know squeaky... Wheels get the wor- gets the worm and I never count my chickens until I've walked a mile in their shoes <laughs> and you thought I wasn't listening <laughs> the audible voice of God is recorded three times in scripture in the New Testament the audible voice of God is recorded three times in the New Testament Two we're really familiar with. Two we're, we're we're probably coming to your mind right now. You think, oh yeah, I know, I know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I got those. Third one we usually don't remember. The first one is at the baptism of Jesus. The this this entry moment when when this collision is happening between heaven and earth. When this this impactful moment, Christ is being baptized by a man, the Messiah. God incarnate is being baptized by another human being, by a, a, a by a lesser human being, by a by any human being, lowered into the water to inaugurate the beginning of his ministry. And in that moment, that inaugural moment, the Trinity meets there in the water. And you got to picture this. You got to you got to realize how cosmically cool this is. I mean, if, you, if you've never stopped to just think about how amazing this is, just, just step back for a second. Let your brain go back to like fourth, third, second grade when things were still cool to you and, and, the, and amazing to you. And you didn't just have that adult version of the blah, 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 blah going on inside your head. Stop for a sec and let your mind imagine what it would be like for the Godhead to be present in one spot on the earth all at once. Jesus, lowered into the water, comes back out and the Holy Spirit descends on Him like a dove and hovering there in the valley above the Jordan is the Father Himself and He says, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This voice out of heaven... This this apparition, this spirit, the the the, the dove that, that rests on Jesus—not not a bird that rests on his shoulder, but the spirit, the dove that rests inside of him. How cool is that? These collisions that that happen in Scripture are are rare, but man, they're cool. There are places where they happen on Mount Sinai. You had it all the time, Je- Jesus. Jesus and Moses meeting on top of the mountain. Heaven meets earth. Man meets God. It's just cool. The sanctuary is that place where God designed for us to come in, for, the, for humanity to come and direct impact, to be under the sphere of His presence. Not just, not just the, the, the background odor of His presence, but the actual visual presence of God. The second takes place when Jesus takes his disciples on a hike. Those of us who hate hiking need to take this under advisement. God may be waiting for you on the top of some mountain out there just to show up. The second one, Jesus and his disciples climb to the top. Of a mountain we we don't even know which mountain it is, actually. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration, and if you go to Israel, there are two or three likely candidates. We don't actually know, but we know that it took place. the disciples recorded in all three all three uh, synoptic gospels. In Matthew seventeen, the disciples are up there on top of the mountain with Jesus. Elijah and Moses show up. Now, backstory on this is awesome. Do you realize this is the first time Moses gets to set foot in the Promised Land? Isn't that just the coolest thing? Moses got to, he got locked out. He got locked out of the Promised Land. Nope, you can't go in because you you struck the rock three times. Sorry, and 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 he waits and he waits and he waits and 1500 years later or so. God says, all right, your day has come, buddy, let's go. And he and Elijah descend on top of the mount to speak to Jesus. What's just happened? Why now? Why is this so important? It was the inauguration of ministry for Jesus the first time. What's what's the big deal on this mountain? Jesus has has chosen his disciples. They're following him, Not, not so awesomely, but they're following him. And Jesus, from this mount, starts to head toward the crucifixion he starts to turn toward the end he's he he's committed to that walk in moments they get to the base of this mountain and and peter will confess who he is will finally say to everyone who will listen this this is in fact god and moments later seconds later perhaps peter will then challenge jesus authority and challenge jesus commitment to go to the cross and Jesus will have to turn to this, his right-hand man, and say, get behind me, Satan. And the temptation that was in the garden is now aimed directly at the Messiah who is headed for a tree. Isn't the Bible cool? And before he heads off to face this, God brings two Survivors of the planet whose survival, whose covering, whose righteousness is wrapped up in the event that is yet to happen. And Jesus faces off with Moses and Elijah. And God says, A bright cloud overshadows them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I love the fact that he adds this for the disciples. Some translators say, listen to him. This one says, hear him. But I, I, I love the fact that this is now so personally directed at the disciples. Before it was generally directed at anyone who would listen. Now there are three interior disciples This is Peter, James, and John on the mountain with Jesus, three of his closest friends on the planet. And to these three, God speaks on top of the mountain. And he says, to just their ears, because Jesus already knew, Moses already knew, Elijah already knew. He says, to just their ears, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Do you think you could, if if God said that to you, do you think you could do that? Would you be in for that? Were they? Would we be? Because they they, they get this advice, and man, a voice from heaven would seem like it would be life-altering, right? But we don't always hear what's being said to us. We don't always listen for the words that God is speaking. Um, there's a story told about uh, about Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt complained that people would stand in those long receiving lines and not hear a word he said. I understand because they would be, you know, they're coming up, they're going to talk to the president, they want to make sure they don't say anything stupid, so they're really not listening to him. And so he was in this long receiving line, and he decided he was going to try a little experiment. And so in this receiving line. People start coming in, and he said, he began to murmur, not real loudly, but softly to them, I killed my mother-in-law today. And people would, while shaking his hand, say, oh, and and blessings on you, and and God bless, and we're very proud of you, and keep going, And, and it just kept going on through that way, through the whole line, until the ambassador from Bolivia came through the line. And he said the same thing to the ambassador from Bolivia. He shook his hand and he said, I I killed my mother-in-law today. And and the ambassador said, and I'm sure she deserved it. (laughs) The voice of authority speaks and we don't always listen enough to know what it says. In, in each of these stories, in each of these, these pictures, we know the disciples walk away from this not listening to Jesus very well. They're not too, too accurately hearing Him at, after this. And, and other times when the voice of God is heard from heaven, people say, was that thunder? What was that sound? And they completely miss it. This, this amazing, impactful moment when heaven and earth are, are meeting and the voice of God is speaking, this, this, this true collision... of the the grace of God, meaning our need, meaning us exactly where we are, taking us for what we are and speaking in our own language. In that very moment, so many people miss it that it's actually recorded scripturally. In John chapter 12, Jesus is speaking again. I'm going to come back to this. And I'll tell you why he's saying, Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again and in this moment. The people who are listening, some of them think it's thunder. Some of them think it may be the voice of an angel. The disciples and Jesus, and apparently those close, have heard this voice and recognize it. and Realize who this is. Some of them were there the first time. Some of them were there the second time. One of them, maybe two, had been there for both of the previous times. John is the prime candidate for the one who heard all three voices. He records this one. After having a lot of time to reflect on what he wanted to write, what he wanted to record. The other disciples don't record this event. Not quite like this. But John has had a long time to think about what people need to know, and what people need to understand, and, and he chooses to have us hear this voice, to catch this piece. once again. So for a little context, if you have your Bible, you may want to look in John chapter 12. I'm going to skip around a little bit. It'll be in 20 to 32, um, if you have one with you. Um, <coughs> now, <coughs> excuse me, there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip. Now, you would pick Philip if you were a Greek for a reason. Philip's name has a, Greek, has, a, has a Greek origin. And so you might think, oh, this guy may be more likely to accept us. He's got this, this Greek thing going on. So let's go talk to him. So they go to Philip, <coughs> who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew. Isn't it great how Andrew seems to always be the conduit to Jesus? Andrew's like the guy who opens the door of the church and lets you in. He's the guy. He's there every day. He's opening the door so you can get in. And and Andrew is opening the opportunity for these guys to get to Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus, Now stop. Now, I want you to just imagine you're the Greeks. You've come to see Jesus. you come to worship at the Passover. You hear Jesus is here. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on. If you read this chapter, Lazarus is hanging around with Jesus now, having once been dead and now alive. That's a story everybody wants to hear, right? So, so people are coming to dinner parties to see Lazarus. People are, are gathering in crowds to watch the parade of Jesus coming in on the donkey to see Lazarus. Lazarus has become a real celebrity in this moment. And so he's, he's sharing the limelight with Jesus. You have this thing going on where, where people are starting to gather be, to him. And even, even the Pharisees say the whole world is going after him. The whole world is going after Jesus. Wouldn't that that was true? Wouldn't it be great if that were true? But, now, you're the Greeks, which is actually the best definition for who you are, unless you're Jewish. So, Mike, you're an exception. You're the Greeks. You've come to see Jesus. You get to Philip, who takes you to Andrew, who goes to Jesus, and you're standing there in the waiting room. And we never hear from you again. We don't know whether you got to hear this. We don't know if you were there. We don't know if you were close enough to see what was going on. That's all we ever hear from you. Now, the good news is they're outside, so at least these guys are probably on the periphery of the crowd when this starts happening. Maybe they at least hear what Jesus has to say. But this is, this is one of those frustrating passages. I want to talk to these guys when I get to heaven. I want to say, what exactly happened? Were you guys there? Did he talk to you? Was, you know, did John just decide not to record what he said to you? Well, what happened exactly to you guys? Because this seems kind of, kind of weird to me. Jesus is usually so polite. He lets kids come and talk to him. He lets everybody talk to him. Why would he hold out on you guys? But Jesus answered, saying to them, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, before we move past these Greeks without, without thought, Jesus was sent to the children of Israel. He was sent as a last testamental opportunity. The final prophet, the final priest, the final voice to give them an opportunity to decide to follow him. To give them an opportunity to accept that he was the Messiah. So when the Greeks when the people around the distant world, the people who are off in the foreign lands, when they start to turn toward Jesus, it signals a change in the world, that the world is beginning to hear the message. It's beginning to spread beyond the borders of Israel. And that may be the very reason why Jesus now says, okay, it's time. It's all coalescing at this moment. And it's the right time. Now down in (coughs) verse 27, (coughs) we find a public confession from Jesus. So I I, want to stop for a second and talk about the vulnerability of this. Here's the Messiah, right? And the Messiah is about to tell you, he's not cool with what's about to happen. We had this experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he's all by himself. We only get the record of it because somehow that got shared with the disciples and they share it with us. This is a public statement from Jesus. This is a public, a public moment of vulnerability from the Messiah himself. And so he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Now, will he ask for that? Those of you who have read your Bible, does he ask for being saved from this hour? Yes, yes he does. But in this moment in the public, he says, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. This moment in time, this, this same kind of collision between heaven and earth, I came to this moment. Bound for a tree, led away from a tree to end what happened between one and the other. Here's Jesus. I came for this very purpose. I don't want to. I'm troubled in my soul about this. Should I ask not to do it? Should I ask the Father to stop it? Should I I beg for God to make this go away? And that's when he says, Father, glorify your name. In the garden we hear Jesus saying, let your will be done, let your will be done. I would like this cup to pass for me. I'd like to not have to do this, but let your will be done. In this place we hear Jesus saying it differently. He says, I really don't want to do this. I'll tell you all, I really don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to deal with this, but for this very reason I came. This is the reason I'm here. Now imagine, imagine Jesus is speaking now. He's, He's sharing this information and he remembers Moses and Elijah on the mountain. If he bails, who saves Moses and Elijah? you you talk about messing some stuff up. What happens to those guys? Do they get kicked out of heaven? Think about it. Because it's the cross that allows them to be present, right? Because it's the covering of the cross, the, the, the erasure of their sins by the blood of Jesus that's causing this to happen. Did, did they get kicked out of heaven if Jesus goes back home? If Jesus bails, do they get thrown out? So if if, if Jesus walked away from this and said, Ah, sorry, I changed my mind. I I decided I can't do this anymore. If if he does, like, Okay, Moses, Elijah, out. Enoch, out. Sorry. Nice knowing you. Weird. Cosmological implications of the decision... God is so confident in the surrender of Christ that He lets three come early to heaven. That's pretty amazing all by itself. God is so confident in the willingness of Jesus to follow through with what's going to happen. God is so certain that Jesus, though faced with this and not wanting to do it, will do it. That he lets three come home early. Covering with the blood that has yet to be spilled. By faith. It's the faith of God in Jesus. The faith of God in the plan. The faith of God in the commitment Christ has to follow this through. And these three get to go home early. Father, glorify your name. I don't want to do this. You glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it in your birth, in your baptism, on the mountain, in your presence on the earth. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Now stop and realize what assurances are in that statement. Think of the assurances for Jesus that are in that statement. Think of the assurances of the resurrection that are in that statement. I will glorify it again. In your death, I will be glorified. In your resurrection, I will be glorified. In the salvation of mankind, I will be glorified. My name will be glorified. Jesus doesn't say glorify my name. He says glorify yours. Because he's completely surrendered to the will of God. Come what may. Father, glorify your name. I have. And I will. Why here? Why now? Well, firstly, Jesus is about to face the cross. Now, he will tell these folks who are questioning whether this is a thunder or whether this is the voice of an angel, he will tell them that this voice came for their benefit, not his. But Jesus is about to face the cross. Number two, the disciples are about to face Jesus' death on the cross. The disciples are about to face the the last thing they wanted to see happen. They're going to have to deal with the crucifixion and death of the Messiah, the one whom they've thrown their lot in with, the one whom they've thrown their hopes and their faith. And everything about their own life is wrapped up in Jesus. They've walked away from family. They've walked away from businesses. They've walked away from everything. And everything now rests in Jesus' success. And he's about to die. And they don't see how there's any success this direction. They don't see how there's any winning at this game. And lastly, the crowds are about to face the death of their Messiah. The gathered crowds we often forget about. We forget about all these people whose hopes are in Jesus. They're, they haven't been following him for three and a half years. Some of them may have only been following him for a couple of days or a few minutes. But they're so hopeful that he's the Messiah and he's about to die. And So why does God speak at this moment? Why do you hear the voice of God from heaven at this moment with these assurances of glory both past and future? why this moment to take to make this statement because everything is wrapped up for these people in what is about to happen Jesus continues now how, how to express this collision to you this moment of impact so much is happening at the cross so much is happening as Jesus' blood flows out so much is going on. This conflict that's been going on since Adam and Eve stepped to the tree is going to meet its end on a different tree. Now is the time of judgment on this world. Jesus will later say, he'll say, look I'm not here to judge anybody. I'm not here to judge the world. Your own words, your own decisions will do that on your behalf. No one will point it out to you. No one will say, this one is bad or that one is bad from heaven. Satan will accuse you, but I won't accuse you. Your own words will accuse you. Your own choices will accuse you. When you see what God is willing to do for you, the judgment will come because the clarity is now present. There may have been confusion before. You may have not understood exactly what the lamb and the sacrifices and all that business was before, but now I'm going to make it absolutely clear. It's going to be so completely clear you can't make a decision that's lost. You you can't. Once informed, your decision now is on you. Judgment comes on the world not because God has decided, okay, it's time to sit down Wrap myself in my robes and bring out my gavel. Judgment comes upon the world because the world is now seeing the nth degree of God's sacrifice, his compassion, his love, and his desire to see his kids go home. And in the same stroke, the prince of this world will be driven out. The one who has maintained control since that day at the fruit stand will be thrown out finally that day at the cross. Now, it's one of those interesting things that's, that's described as present and happened and done. And yet we still deal with the aftermath of a defeated foe going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The Bible not only says that he's been thrown out, it says Jesus took away his key. He's not getting back in. At the cross, Satan is a defeated foe. Jesus is a victorious Savior. What is left is for the people who are informed of this to make up their minds who they're following. And God hangs on and hangs on and hangs on waiting for the last one of us. To make up our mind. What has happened in these thousands of years? Millions, maybe billions of people have accepted Jesus. What have we been waiting for? All of that. What is Jesus waiting for? What is God waiting for? The opportunity for the last person to make up their mind. Oh, man. If the collision of the Trinity that day in the waters of the Jordan River was amazing. What took place at the cross, the the marker that it stakes out for you and for me, the, the standard that it raises of God's care and God's intervention, the the, the, the the process that it sets in place for the salvation of mankind is beyond the capability of my tiny mind to grasp what it shouts that I truly can understand no matter what, is man, he must love us. And then he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. If you're reading your King James Version, it says I will draw all people men to myself. Remember, that's just mankind. I will draw all people to myself. No one is driven to Jesus. Do you ever notice that? No one is forced. No one is driven. No one has a whip and a chair behind them, making them go to Jesus. But everyone is drawn to Jesus. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It was true on the cross he was describing how he would die he was describing the crucifixion he was he was inferring to the disciples that this was going to be the process they wouldn't get it till later but they would understand it afterwards and upon thinking about it and reflecting on it john says yeah yeah that's exactly what he meant if i be lifted up if i be if i be raised up like the serpent in the wilderness if i if i be raised up on a cross i will draw all men to myself by finally catching their attention finally get them to turn their head away from the from the tree in the garden and look toward a different tree i will finally give them an an Impactful enough picture that they will be drawn to me. They will be drawn to me. They will be drawn to me. They will look and recognize that it's me. That it's me who's been rescuing and it's me who's been calling. It's me who's been wanting to take them home all of this time. He will finally get enough of our attention that we'll make a decision. We will make a decision. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It was true then. It is true now. It is still the burden of the church. It is still the call of the believer to lift up Jesus. It's never been our call to lift up doctrine or theology. It's always been our call to lift up Jesus. It's never been the church's responsibility to lift up creedalism. It's never been the church's role to force people to, un- to, to, to take a, a litmus test of understanding. You're not saved by knowledge. Knowledge just helps you to understand who God is. You're not saved by theology. Theology is just a study of something your, your, your brain can't comprehend. You are saved by Jesus. And by lifting up Jesus, the church changes the world. That moment on that tree... So much happened. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22 tells us the story in one quick sentence. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. We rode the cross that day in Christ. We were on the cross that day in Christ. Not physically taking our own pun- punishment, but in the substitution of the one who hung for us so we didn't have to. In Christ. It becomes, the, it becomes the foundational call for the New Testament church. Paul would say to the Corinthians, in Christ, all will be made alive. He will say, in Christ, God, but, but all of us are alive in Christ because of God. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. The love of Christ which is in... Which, for the love of God which has come to us in Christ. I need to slow down. We are one body in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We have triumph in Christ. The veil is taken away in Christ Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we who were actual sinners might be made righteous in Him. In Christ. You are all in one. You are all one in Christ. But now, in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of the Lord. We are partakers of God's promises in Christ. It is God who in Christ forgave. It is the promise of life eternal, which is ours in Christ. You see, this is the ultimate point of impact between you and me. This is the demonstration of, of how much he cared because on the cross all of this began to happen. We were in Christ that day. He drew all men to himself and he carried us as his burden to the cross. He drew all men to himself and he carried our sins away at the cross. He drew all of us to himself and he washed uh, washed away our sins through his blood. In Christ, we met that day with the answer to our problem. A long, long time ago, our forefathers stood at a tree and broke away from God and wandered off on their own path. And that, that set into motion our death. That set into motion the end of our opportunity for eternal life. That set into motion from that tree, the, the final end of all of us, to be an end in itself. There w- no hope. And thousands of years later, As planned before the foundations of the earth, Jesus climbed on a different kind of tree. And in that moment, on that tree, all who were drawn to him were lifted up, transformed, covered, forgiven, and given eternal life.